I uh, correspond regularly with, with people. I, I, I receive dozens of uh, texts and emails uh, every week, but, uh, and I appreciate them. But this week, I received a, a letter, letter from a friend. It was a personal letter. It was written by hand. It was thoughtful. It was meaningful. It was creative. It was unique. It was on a special card uh, featuring the uh, artwork of uh, Michigan artist Gwen Frostick, a linoleum cut of a loon. It, it included uh, a, a personal note, a very meaningful uh, personal note, and, and it also included a little photocopy. My friend took a photocopy of his daughter's handbook where she took notes when I preached at camp one summer. And he sent me this, and then I will cherish it because it's, it's personal. It's, it's unique. It's handwritten. It's thoughtful. Uh, that's the way it is when you get a special note like that. It means a lot to you. But what you have in your lap today in Second Peter, and in the second letter that Peter writes to his, he calls them his beloved, is beyond anything you and I have ever received from anyone. It's the very word of God in a letter written by a dying man, a man who's facing death by execution for his faith. A man who at one time had walked with Jesus, who was in Jesus' inner circle, one of three in his inner circle, a, a man that was uh, imperfect. He at one time denied the Lord but was restored, you remember. And he knows he's about to die. He's probably in Rome and he's going to be crucified. And he says there are some things that you need to remember. It's going to be in the first letter, you remember, he tried to help the faithful to finish faithful in spite of the suffering that they would have to face. But in the second letter, he encourages us to be faithful in spite of the false teaching and the opponents of the faith. And in particular, in the text today, as you heard our sister read it, it's about those who mock the truth of the second coming, those who scoff at the promises of God, those who question the reality of the second coming. And, and they, there may be some among us today that have those questions. Uh, there may be scoffers, mockers, mo most likely just folks that have questions from time to time and people that live among a growing group of mockers and of scoffers. And we have in a, in a, in a beautiful passage of Scripture, a very powerful a passage of Scripture today in 2 Peter in chapter 3. If you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter in chapter 3, if you haven't already done that. We'll walk through this passage. And I want to show you five things that Peter said. Or they kill me, I want to remind you of five things. World. Yes, and these notes are online at BethelJackson.org. If you want to look them up later or now, track with those notes. If that's helpful for some of you, that's helpful. Some of you, that would be a distraction. <clears throat> Here's the first reminder. Peter says, remember there will be mockers and scoffers who question the promises of God. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. The heart of this is, Peter says, I want you to remember, 
that those mockers, those scoffers, they're, they're a sign of the times. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's saying, in essence, I'm reminding you that the Old Testament is the Word of God. And I'm reminding you that the message of the apostles is the Word of God, containing the promises of God that God, by His very nature and character, is going to keep. I'm reminding you, beloved, verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, <clears throat> where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I was told by my mom and dad that I should carry a Bible to school. That's what they said. They said, carry a Bible to school. I was thinking about that today, and I, I carried my Bible right on top of my books. It might have been a little spiritual pride. It, there may have been sin in that. Uh, but I did carry my Bible. I did read my Bible in study hall. I'm glad I did. I marked my Bible. I, I still have memories, of many, many memories of study halls where I went to specific places on a specific Bible. I made a mark, and, and still to this day, I remember. Matter of fact, this text rings in my mind. Um, one of the Dahan brothers preached on this. And I remember in high school, here's the outline, it's still in my brain. The scoffers, their character, their question, their ignorance, and their doom. That's what I should have been preaching today. I should have used the Hans. Their character, their question, their ignorance, and their doom. That's stuck in my mind from high school. Wrote it in my Bible. That's what we're going to talk about today. But I was reading in junior high school, in my Bible, <clears throat> I was reading this passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> in, on, in the same day, uh, the, the, the football coach, a very popular uh, teacher in our school who was not a follower of Jesus, uh, was teaching our biology class. And he introduced the idea, the theory of uniformitarianism. He said it's the scientific idea that the world doesn't change, but, it go, but it's predictable. It's predictable, and there's no interruptions in it. And when he described that, I literally took my Bible. I have this Bible still. I literally, while I was sitting over here on this side of the class, I was watching him there. I literally opened my Bible to that passage, and I looked down and read this very passage. And I thought either he's right or the Bible's right. What he said, and I, said, I went home to my dad. I said, Dad, am I, am I wrong about this? It, it, they're, they're saying, where's the promise of his coming? Verse 4, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And the next chunk is going to be this they willfully or deliberately overlooked. Uh, that God steps into time in judgment, like, for instance, the flood. And so um, it's interesting. I, I, I think about this sometimes, and I believe the Spirit of God will guide a child of God with the Word of God to do the will of God with split-second timing if he walks faithfully with God. And that's why you read your Bible every day. That's why you want to master the book, the, the Bible. Because God uniquely uses the Bible in a supernatural way in your life with split-second timing 
on a, on a given day. And, and, and he's saying, don't, don't let the presence of skeptics and the presence of scoffers and the presence of mockers and professional questioners discourage you. They're going to be here till the end. They're a sign of the times. You be bold. And the older I get, the more confident I am that the Bible is something I can build my life on. The more confident I am that the promises of God are yea and amen. And I can trust them. And I, and I don't have to apologize to anybody. Uh, Gernal, William Gernal, the Puritan, wrote a book on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. It's 1,000, 1,200 pages. It's that thick. Pretty impressive. I actually read some of this. I was reading it one day. This is the book that Charles Spurgeon said, if I was stranded on a desert island, and I had only one book besides the Bible. It would be Gurnall's The Christian in Complete Armor. And in this, Gurnall, uh, the Puritan, he says, Oh, how uncommon a sight it is to see a bold sinner and a fearful saint. It's an ugly thing to see sinners bold and saints fearful, he says. What an uncomely sight it is to see a bold sinner and a fearful saint. One resolved to be wicked and a Christian wavering in his holy course to see guilt put innocence to flight and hell keep the field impudently braving it with displayed banners of open profaneness to see saints hide their colors for shame or run from them for fear who would rather wrap themselves in them and die upon the place than thus betray the glorious name of god which is called upon by them to the scorn of the uncircumcised colonel is saying it's an ugly thing to be a cowardly Christian. Be bold. And he wrote that hundreds of years ago. It sounds like he's describing our time. And Peter, as he's ready to die, says, you die bold. You don't let them intimidate you. God said this was going to happen. Don't be surprised by scoffers. Be bold for God. Go around and witness as if Bill Gates was offering you $100 bill for everybody you invite to church on Easter. It's interesting, isn't it? Y'all are so quiet, you're like. You had a roll of $100 bills in your pocket for everybody that would talk to you uh, about Jesus. You'd, you'd be bolder, wouldn't you? You'd have more confidence. It just shows that our, that our faith needs to be bolstered. And, and so it is. And in a time that we live in, when so many are mocking God so faithfully, and so many are scoffing God regularly, and they're so convincing, and they're sometimes so beautiful, or they're so handsome, or they're so popular, it would be easy for us to begin to be quiet and, sh and shine timid in our faith. But our sons and our daughters need for us to stand up and be bold. And those that come after us, Lois and I get to get on a plane on Tuesday and fly to Texas, and we get to meet little, little June. June is a girl I've never met. She's our granddaughter. Her name is Pierpont, June. And uh, we have 18 grandchildren. I want them to know God. I want them to love God. I want them to experience his beauty. And they're going to grow up in a culture where sinners are bold. Of all the times, saints should be bold. So Peter says, I'm going to die. You be bold now. Now, now don't be intimidated by their scoffing. And here's why. Here's why. Number two. By the way, reminder. Number one was remember there will be mockers and scoffers who question the second coming. But we don't need to be intimidated. Here's why. Because there has been and there will be 
judgment for the ungodly. We don't, we don't glory in this. We, we have an alternative for them, but, but, but we need to understand the Bible is very plain spoken about this. Always is. God's judgment on the ungodly is plain in the Bible, even though preachers are shy about saying it these days. It's a, it's a major thing in the Bible to, to understand there is a reward for those who repent, and there's judgment for those who do not repent, who are ungodly. Verses 5 through 7, hear it now. For they deliberately or willfully overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That God created everything by his word. And that by means of, the, the, of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and, and perished. That by his word, he flooded the earth in judgment. In verse 7, and by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exists are stored up for for fire and being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, what we want to do is we want to make it a metaphor. We want to say, you know, fire like some kind of fire like judgment. But the water wasn't a metaphor in the flood. It was real and catastrophic. And God broke into time with judgment. And mockers and scoffers don't believe that God will break into time with judgment again. But he says over and over he will. Jesus says this. Peter is repeating this because he heard it from Jesus, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach that the justice of God is perfect and the mercy of God is perfect. And P.S., P.S., resist the temptation to ask for justice for those who hurt you and mercy for you. Are you with me on this? I have some people that have hurt me. I tend to think, well, God, when are you going to, you know, even the score? And, but I'm a little slow with that prayer because then I think, well, do I want judgment to fall on me? For all the things that God has so mercifully forgiven me. No. I love it that he's merciful. So the, the better thing for Christians is to say to those who have hurt us, God, pour out your mercy on them. Help them to repent. Don't pray for God to judge them. Pray for them to escape the judgment of God and flee the cross like you did and repent. Pray for that. Now, that's what, he, but he says, understand, don't let scoffers intimidate you. Judgment came in the past in the flood and judgment will come in the future in fire. And I know you're like me, and sometimes you pray, how long, God? Why, why do you let things like this happen when you're a victim of injustice or those that you love are a victim of injustice or when you face an unspeakable, painful sadness in your own life or loss that's just unspeakably hard, and, you, and you're tempted to believe, God, why haven't you straightened this out yet? And, and, and you preface it, I hope, with, God, I love you, I trust you, but help me understand this. But sometimes people, they're, they're in the depth of, of despair and, and heartache, and they, and they cry out against God, and they go over on the side of the mocker, over on the side of the scoffer, over on the side of the questioner. Don't, don't do that, Peter says, don't do that. God will judge. He has in the past. He will in the future. So we should, we should be good stewards of this beautiful earth. But never forget our commission is not to save the earth. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says they were to care for the earth. Our commission is to save the people who will populate the new heaven and the new earth. You won't get in trouble from anybody if you put a religious veneer on your, on your environmentalism. And I don't think you should litter. I love the earth as much or more than you do. I don't think you should litter. But the great commission that Jesus gave before he ascended was to reach people to populate the new heaven and the new earth, not to make sure nobody litters. I went to, when I went to school, they were not convinced that abortion was wrong. We would have debates about abortion. 
but they were sure littering was wrong, and they roundly and consistently condemned it. Littering was always wrong. Killing a baby, we have to argue about that. But why? Because they don't believe that they face God in judgment someday, and that his word, they'll be judged by his word, and yet the scriptures say that. There was an, an infidel farmer, the story goes, he would go in town, he would go to the to the feed mill and he would mock God, especially if the pastor was around. He would go to the barber and he would mock God, especially if the Baptist deacons were around. He loved to openly defy God. He said, I do most of my farming on Sunday and I defy God to take away my crops from me. And sure enough, when October came, the crops came in and all the farmers had a a year of bounty, and so did he. And so he eagerly wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper, and he said, I want you to know there is no God, and I've proven it. I did all my work on Sunday, and I defied him, and I got as good a crop as anyone else. And then beneath his letter, the believing editor of the newspaper wrote, of course we know that God doesn't settle all of his accounts in October. <laughs> and that's what this passage is saying. God is going to judge someday. When you think he's not, but he is, he, that's the way it happened in the past. After you die, then judgment comes. After you die. And so uh, God, then, you think about this, uh, these are the things that Peter wants us to remember in order for us to be bold in a, in a world where sinners are bold. First, remember this. Uh, that there is going to be mocking and there is going to be scoffing and in, there are going to be those who question God in the time before the Lord returns. And second, remember that he has been and he will there, will, there has been and there will be judgment and specifically for the ungodly, those who have resisted and rejected God. And this should motivate us, it should stir our hearts, it should sober us, it should make us eager and creative to try to get people to Christ. Third, remember, God's patient, and he's eager for all to repent. I'm glad we don't have to leave it there in those verses that we just read. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But immediately he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. There's the sweet spot of this passage. Did you hear it? This is the sweet spot. The Lord is slow to fulfill his promise. It's not slow, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish or die and go to hell or face judgment, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance. You have ungodly, you have repentance. You get to be in a category there. And are you glad that he's patient? Can, can I get an amen on that from, from normally kind of quiet people? Can I get an amen? Thank God he's patient. Amen? Amen. Thank God he's patient. Amen. Glory be to God he's patient. I think about this today. You know, they wrote a book, uh, The Late Great, we'll talk about this in a minute, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and lots of people came to know the Lord because they thought Jesus was going to come back in before 1980. Well, he hasn't yet. Um, he hasn't yet. 
But um, I, I thought that's kind of interesting because our oldest son, our, our first child of eight, was born in 1981. And all of our children were born after 1981. And all of our 18 grandchildren were born after 1981. That's how it works. Because of God's patience and his mercy, I trust there will be people that populate the kingdom. Aren't you glad that he's patient? Why wouldn't you repent into the kingdom? Why wouldn't you live with eager repentance all the time? God, whatever I need to change my mind, change my will, change my course and my direction to go with yours, I, I change it. I repent and believe. And this is what he said. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Those would be those people that you should invite to Easter. No, no pressure, just a little encouragement. No pressure, no pressure, seriously. Just think and pray and let the Holy Spirit tell you, here's one that might. Here's a person that's shown a little interest. Here's a person who tears up when you say you pray for them. Here's a person who has questions, who's been through a bit of hardship. Here's a person that lost their mom this year. Here's a person that lost their daughter this year. Here's a person that lost their job this year. Maybe now things have changed. Their, here's a person their marriage is struggling. And, and wouldn't it be nice if you just said to them, hey, we're having, the, the ladies of the church, are, and the men are going to do the pancakes, and the ladies are going to do, they're going to team up and make us a really nice breakfast. Would you like to come along? Tell them I'm interesting to hear. A little white lie like that won't hurt anything on Easter. I'm just kidding. But you tell them, hey, you know, come, our pastor's super enthusiastic. He's going to talk about Jesus. You want to hear him. And uh, pretend it's real good, and, and they'll come. And, and you'll be surprised. God, the Holy Spirit, might just touch them. I mean, wouldn't it be sweet to think about you? You came to Easter, and you had a great day, and you went home, and you had ham, and you had family over. And then you went to bed and you thought, God is good. He forgave me. I'm happy. Or that other where you go and then you're sitting next to somebody and you literally, your heart is beating fast because you're going, they're hearing the gospel right now. This could change their life. And then you go back home and you pray. And then maybe you have a little Bible study with them and you answer their questions. And then maybe they come and they join you on that pew or there's some other good Bible preaching church in the area. And what a, what a powerful thing. Okay, this is why. We are unwilling that any should perish, but all should come to repent. We want to we help them. This is, this is the whole flow of this. So Peter is saying, I'm going to die. These are the things I want you to remember. People are going to mock, but understand those same people that mock are going to be judged, but they don't have to be judged. They can repent, and they don't have to perish. That's your job. Tell them they can repent. Remember, God is eager for them to repent. Story, story is told, true story. Uh, something that happened in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, an inn in the mountains of Scotland, in the highlands of Scotland, in an inn many years ago. And some fishermen had gathered in that evening. And they were all enjoying the food and the tea, and they were uh, talking, and they were telling their stories. And the waitress came by with some tea. About the same time, a man gestured about the size of his fish and knocked the waitress's hand, and it splashed against the wall. True story. Made an ugly stain of tea on the wall. And everyone sucked in their breath. And then a, a man sitting over the corner that nobody had noticed before cleared his throat and said, excuse me, but may I, may I, if, if you don't like it, you can paint over it. And he took a piece of charcoal out of his pocket and began to paint a stag on the wall. Nobody knew it at the time, but it was, uh, it was the leading 
uh, wildlife artist in England, Sir Edward Landseer. And he took that ugly stain, and, he, and he, you can see these things, not this particular thing, but you can see his paintings of stags on it. He sold one to the London Museum, one sold to the London Museum a bit ago for $4 million, he, a priceless work of art. That's what you can tell your friends. Jesus can take the ugliest stain in your life, and he can make something beautiful out of it. Jesus can take the thing that you are so ashamed of, and he can turn that into an opportunity for you to tell people how wonderful he is. He's that artist. That's what he's saying. Now, the fourth thing. So if this is all true, what should we do? Well, we should live a holy life. Number four, remember to live a holy life even when everyone around you is fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Review, ready? Number one. Number one is remember there will be mockers and scoffers who question the second coming. But also, number two, remember there will be judgment as there has been in the past, there will be in the future for all of the ungodly. So number three, remember that God is patient and eager for all to repent so they don't have to be judged with the ungodly. And number four, for you, remember that you should live a holy life when everyone around you, everyone around you is living for the lust of the flesh. Now, listen to verse 10 and all the way through 12. But the day of the Lord will come. You have a couple time-stamped uh, phrases th that are in this passage. The last days and the day of the Lord. And, and they are both days and epochs of time. In the Bible, when you see the day of the Lord, sometimes it refers to it any time when God breaks into the world in judgment. The unique and special day of the Lord that will be initiated by the return of Jesus, initially in judgment, but then the reward of saints. But then you have the end time, and often we think of the end time. The scriptures really talk about the end time as any time after the resurrection of Jesus. It's the, the inauguration of the end time, if you will. And so it gets more and more end all the time. Here you have um, a, a reminder, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, suddenly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the earth and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. A really godly seasoned Christian, an old, old-time saint will sometimes say, you'll say, hey, can I borrow this? Or, and they'll say, well, well, they say, they'll always say, well, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Yeah, you can... You can use my truck. It's all going to burn. You can, you can put my lens on your camera. It's all going to burn. This, this house, I'm just using it for God. It's all going to, that's what they mean because they've read their Bible. People say, well, be careful. Take care of the earth. Like, we don't want to hurt it. Of course we don't want to hurt the earth. That would not be a good stewardship. It wouldn't be wise. It's become a replacement gospel for many. It's all going to burn. I heard one guy say, if you think we're hurting the earth, where do you see what Jesus does to it someday? So now, understand he's going to re, he, he also is capable of renewing the earth, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, but that's, but that's my next point. Remember to live a holy life is this point. When everyone around you fails to live a holy life, waiting for, verse 12, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. But what does it say? It says, what sort of persons, this is verse 11, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness. Like that. What should you be thinking when you see the earth 
It's coming to the end. This sermon, my, my technical title is Five Ways Prepare for the End of the World. So there will be the end of the world as we know it. It will be followed by a new heavens and a new earth. But you, if you know that the end of the world is coming, you should be ready for it. He says there are five ways to be ready for it. Remember, and, and, and its essence is, for us, is obviously call other, repent, call others to repentance, live a life that's holy. Um, don't let them convince you to join them in living for the lust of the flesh. Jesus expects you to live a holy life. Jesus empowers you to live a holy life. The Holy Spirit expects you to live a holy life. The Holy Spirit empowers you to live a holy life. Don't be discouraged. You can. You might think, oh, I've failed over and over again. That's the way it works. You keep moving forward. He keeps helping you. One day he brings you to perfection. Keep going. Other believers need you to live a holy life. Your wife needs you to live a holy life. Your husband needs to see you live a holy life. Here's the rumor. Rumor is there aren't any really good men anymore. That's what they say. You hear that a lot. Women say that because they've been hurt so bad by men. They'll say, really, you can't trust any men. It would be good for good men to prove them wrong by living holy lives. Our children need to know that it is possible to live a holy life. So that's why we live a holy life, to show, to be an example to the little ones that run around the church building on a Wednesday night, that run up and hug you when you come. This little child needs to know there are godly men and there are godly women in the world who do live holy lives, and they are kind, and they are safe, and they're good because of what God's done in their life. These are the people we I want to be. You've had people in your life like that. We want to be those kind of people. And, 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 and then the unbeliever expects, Jesus expects us and empowers us to live a holy life. Believers need us to live holy life. Unbelievers are tired of us telling them to live a holy life while we're not living, while our leaders are not living holy lives. They are sick of that. They're keen to that. Why would they say, why, why would they without Christ be able to live a holy life when we say we have Christ and don't live a holy life? And so you might be here today and you might be discouraged about some pocket of failure in your life. And I just want to encourage you, if God commands us to live a holy life, we can. He will empower us. He will help us. He will, he will, he'll come alongside, and he'll walk with us. He'll aid us. Repent. Don't be ungodly, but live a holy life. It, it, the, the Bible says it's in Pauline letter, one of the Pauline letters, exercise yourself unto God. And it's this time of year when I'm pining for spring, I sometimes can smell the leather of the ball glove. I can hear the banter of little children on the baseball field. I can hear the pop of the glove. And dads and grandpas and mamas crying out for their kids. Steal that base. Steal home. I would always have them steal home because kids can't throw you out at home. I'm like, steal home every time. I decided, my boys said they want to play baseball. I said, okay, well, if you're like me, they're going to put you in right field. So every once in a while, you'll have an opportunity to catch a ball like once a season. And when the ball comes out there to right field, you're going to catch it. And here's how we know. Because we're going to go out there right now, and I'm going to hit you with 100 fly balls a day. So Kyle and Chuck, our two oldest, I remember we lived out on the farm, and I'd take them out in the middle of the daytime. I'd take a break from my study. I'd take them out. It'd be April snowing. It'd be, it'd be late March. It'd be snow coming, spitting down. And they'd be like, I'm cold. Like, we can't go in yet. We're at 75. Each of you has to catch 100 fly balls before we go in. And I would just hit them fly balls over and over and over and over again. Sometimes the ball would hit them in the head. 
sometimes they would fall and, and drop the ball. But they got, so they were pretty good. They could catch. I remember the first time Chuck, our younger of the two older guys, caught the ball backhanded. I'm like, that was, that was progress. 100 fly balls a day. Then we took them to the batting cages. This was cute. Mom didn't want to be embarrassed by these boys. So she would take her quarters and she would say, come with me. We're going to the batting cage. You know, you're not going to embarrass me. And she would put quarters in the, <laughs> and they would, they would, they would practice to hit those balls. Opening day of the season, double zero, blade, blade, the evil people from Bladensburg, all of them are evil. None of them were elect. Um, there was a kid, double zero. He's a heavy set little kid, redheaded little kid, double zero. He was pitching opening day. Kyle got up to bat. He was a little frightened. You could tell. He was a little frightened. He didn't want to go up near the plate, but it was okay. The guy wasn't going to get anywhere near the plate. He went up and threw a fastball, him in the middle of the back, the low part of the back. Kyle worms on the ground, you know, in pain from this ball hitting him. I'm like, you know, get up, go to first base. And we got in the car. Kyle's like, I don't want to play against him. He's mean. I'm like, you stay with it. At the last, you're going to think I made this up, but I didn't make this up. Last game of the season, Bladensburg has got the bases loaded. Guess who's up? Double zero. Guess who's in right field? Kyle. Guess who hits the ball to right field? Double zero. Punk. And guess who caught it? That's right. The kid who caught 100 fly balls a day. Caught the ball. That's my story. That's a true story. Yeah, that's that. That's that really did happen. Honest. I wouldn't lie to you. You might get tired of dropping the ball over and over again, failing, struggling. But you want to remember, one of these days, the sky's going to burst open and Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to judge the ungodly and he's going to welcome into his heavenly kingdom all those who know him. These are going to be people with your last name. Either going off into hell, away from God, or going to be with the Lord. This should, the people that you work with, do you really believe there's a hell? Do you really believe that there's going to be a judgment someday? Then why haven't you told them? Wouldn't it be better for them to reject you and, and, and yet know that about God than for them to face the judgment of God and you never told them? I think this is something that we should think about. Now, let me tell you the fifth thing and the final thing, and that is remember the new heavens and the new earth. Remember the new heavens and the new earth. Look at verse 13, and it, this ends beautifully. But according to his promise, so the earth is going to burn up with fire, right? And, and, and be dissolved, there's going to be a heavens and a new earth, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And often when we talk about new heaven and new earth, we also talk about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So here's how I believe the scriptures are teaching us that, that what's going to happen is that uh, Jesus is going to come back for his saints. Some believe that will be before uh, the tribulation period where he's dealing with uh, Israel uniquely. I, I tend to believe that. At the end of that, he comes back in power and great glory all the way to the earth, puts his feet on the earth, and judgment comes, the day of the Lord. And we, ha we that are, are with the Lord, the saints come with him, the scriptures say at that time. He inaugurates a, a, a millennial kingdom, a promise of a 1,000-year reign. It says it right there in Revelation 21. You can read about it. He's promised his people a 1,000-year reign on the earth. And then after that, a new heaven and a new earth. But, but at one point, God burns the earth up with fire. It's like he refines the earth, and then the new earth is like the old earth in the same sense that Jesus' resurrection body is recognizable from his 
body that he had before his resurrection. There's a continuity. Theologians toss about, talk about continuity and discontinuity when they talk about this passage, and they talk about, well, will the earth be all completely new and we won't recognize anything? Or will it be a new, brand new, brand spanking, sinless new version of the world we recognize? Uh, some say, in other words, will, he be, will the earth be renewed or will the earth be replaced? And, and I tend to lean toward the renewed thing, but good people differ. But all of us agree this. There will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth someday. And there will be a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And righteousness will dwell there and unrighteousness will not dwell there. And those who have been faithful will be rewarded. And the ungodly will not be there because they'll perish. This is consistent teaching of the Bible. If you were to look throughout the Bible, you see hints of this, beautiful hints of this in Acts. I think it's Peter's preaching here. And whom heaven and earth must receive until the time of restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. Peter writes it again in his book. In Matthew, Jesus, he says, um, truly I say to you, in the new world, in some verses it says, in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. If you um, want to read a gorgeous part of the Bible about the ultimate earth, there will be an ultimate world. I believe we will recognize all the places on earth that we saw before, but they will be in their unbroken, unfallen condition. They'll be, they'll be filled with, with amazing beauty. This helps us to understand what will heaven be like? It'll be like earth times whatever number you want to put in there. The one who made the earth in six days. My book, if he can do a virgin birth, he can make the earth in six literal 24-hour days. That's what I think. If he can speak the earth into existence in a handful of days, then think about the, the eternal world that he has been working on in May and that he will create. And this is the way the Bible talks about, about that. Um, Romans in chapter, you ever notice what I do on Sunday morning? We sing, we pray, we preach, and then I take up all the other minutes I can take before noon so that I can send you on your way with a holy resolve for God. So listen to God's word. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed one day when the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it itself will be free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation's been groaning together with pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but the, the created ones. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly and wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that seen is not hope, for hope for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us with our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is like the earth is groaning, the saints are groaning, the Spirit is groaning. The earth hasn't been renewed yet. When the earth is renewed, it follows suit. It follows the renewed creation. So what, what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 is the earth. And he's saying, when human beings get their new glorified body, the earth gets this new skin. The earth gets this new makeover, complete, total, complete renovation makeover. New heaven, new earth, and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God and rests upon the earth. This is the renewal of all things. This is 
the regeneration. This is the eternal state. This is what's described in, in Revelation and 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and we will dwell with them, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in the city, the temple of the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Where his temple is, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it, and its gates will never be shut day and night. There will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter. Nor anyone who does not, does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. Did you catch that? Always springtime in heaven, blossom and fruit, 12 months of the year means blossoms, 12 months of the year. May I read into that? First springtime in heaven, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they'll see his face. They will see his face. They will see his face. So I want to see his face someday. It's one that I've, have loved but I haven't seen. It's one that I have heard about and trusted and read about. We're going to see his face someday in the new heaven and in the new earth. I wouldn't want to miss that for the world or any lust of the flesh that might distract me from it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do that. They, they say in the early church there was a common greeting that really only the, the initiated knew. When a Christian would meet another Christian, he would smile and say, Maranatha, Maranatha. It would just be the common, it would be a common thing on the tongue of a follower of Jesus to hasten God's return. Jesus, come back soon. Maranatha, that's what they would say. Jesus may come back at any time. Do the saints still say, do they say Maranatha? When I was in high school, a miracle happened on Victoria Drive across the street from my house. It was the most unusual thing. I had, I had never expected it. Some boys lived over there. They weren't athletes. They weren't uh, scholars. They were what we called heads in our school. That was probably short for potheads. They, they were with the kids that smoked out there. They were pretty rough. They had a van. They, they, they kind of wanted to be hippies. They had a colorful van with a, with a peace symbol on it uh, on the front end. And, uh, and they were kind of rowdy. They drank and smoked weed and stuff. I kind of kept my distance from them because they, they were so different than me. I was the, remember, I was the Baptist pastor keeping the short hair cut and the Bible on his books. If it was left up to me, I don't think I ever would have reached those boys. But you know what? Somebody did. Somebody did. Somebody gave those boys a book 
called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. It's the bald proclamation that Jesus could come back at any time. And you know what those knuckleheads did? They believed it. Those knuckleheads believed it. They believed that Jesus was coming back, and they started to change so much. They, they had such joy. They had such enthusiasm for God. They had such hunger for God. They came to get me one day, and they said, we're having a Bible study in the basement. We're talking about the return of Jesus. Do you want to come over and be with us and talk about that? I'm like, okay. So I'm kind of nervous and feel weird, and I go over to the basement. These guys are radiant with joy because somebody told them, Jesus is coming back. And those knuckleheads believed it. And it changed their lives. And it gave them joy. I'll never forget walking back home, thinking to myself, goodness, that was a miracle. That's a miracle. May God send us miracles of people whose hearts still cry, Maranatha, 